Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Your Booked, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm Daisy Buchanan, your host and the author of The Sisterhood, A Love Letter to the Women Who Shape Us, out now in paperback. For our fifth series of Your Booked, we're in the USA. And this week, we're just outside San Francisco, which has hosted literary grandees from Mark Twain to Armistead Mopan. And it's the home of our guest, Believer Editor, McSweeney's writer and US National Book Award honoree, Daniel Gumbiner. Daniel, the author of 2018's The Boat Builder, talked about nature reading, the strangeness of calling Las Vegas home, and the fact that a reader can always find nourishment and inspiration in E.B. White. So we're in the Bay Area, and it's the most beautiful autumn day. I can't get over how gorgeous and light and autumnal it is in here. It's very writerly in here, I think, all of the wood and the... This is my like my dream writing room, if I, if I had my druthers and could cheese. Um, can I ask you about your nature books here? I love these. Um, the Natural History of the San Francisco Bay Region and sure. A Guide to Field Identification, Seashells of North America. Do you use these? Yeah, I do, actually. Generally, when I'm working, one of the things I like to do... I don't usually like to read other fiction when I'm working, uh, when I'm in like an intense period of working, because I find sometimes it snuffs out my own voice a little bit or that's something that I need to pay attention to it is not letting my own voice get distracted so one of the things I like to do is read material that's kind of like tangentially related to the work I'm doing but isn't fictional or isn't voiced in that same way uh, so that's the kind of thing I'll often read or sort of like a, a non-fiction book that's that's kind of related to the subject but also not directly related. Those books are from when I was working on The Boat Builder. Uh, oh, of course, yeah. because um, you want to know about conditions at sea. Um, <laughs> now, these illustrations are so beautiful and so precise. Yeah. Um, these are really gorgeous books. And then that other pamphlet right there, that Amargosa Desert Flora and Fauna to the left there. Yeah. So this is a little pamphlet that was made by uh, a class with their teacher. And the Amargosa is a river uh, in the Mojave. Much of it is underground, actually. Uh, long river that, that flows through the desert. 
And uh, I've been living in Las Vegas for the past uh, two and a half years. I just moved back here a couple of months ago. So this is all just still settling into this place in a way. But um, I was working on a book that was set there. Uh, so And I ended up picking up that pamphlet at a uh, museum in the town of Shoshone. Yeah, you can see right there on the back, there's a map. And so that's another example of something that was just kind of interesting to look at while I was writing sort of sense research, almost material about the surroundings, about the place, about the feel. So that's the kind of thing I I didn't. And it's not like I'll, it's not like I'm directly researching anything per se. It's just sort of like getting a feel for the place. And I think then that research shows up in certain ways. Um, we have a, I'm, I'm the managing editor of The Believer and we have a interview with Barry Lopez in the next issue and he talks about one of his first book uh, which is actually over there of Wolves and Men which is an amazing book he has this line in the interview where apparently when he turned in the manuscript to his agent his agent said you can see the research shining through I might be slightly misquoting that but it's something like that and I think that's sort of how I think about research too is like not something that's necessarily directly going to be in there, but you can kind of like feel it in the background that there's some depth to the, what you're seeing on that, on the page. That makes so much sense. I really like the idea of it being a, like a no pressure research experience. Yeah. You're just absorbing rather than be like, I have to find these facts and I have to kind of bring them back in this place. And yeah, I think that's a real difference, isn't there? When you read something that has been researched and sort of it's atmospherically so so pure and so you feel like you're absolutely there. And then sometimes there are some things I read and like, oh, someone cared so much about this research. They couldn't let it go. Yeah. They, had to, they had to bring it to it. This, I don't know. Um, Barry Lopez at all. So is this uh, this book of wolves and men? Yeah. Um, are we sort of in David Attenborough country? A little bit. I mean, there is some of that sort of observational nature writing related to the biology of the wolf and the ha the habits and lifestyles of the wolf. But it's also uh, what's really interesting about this book is it it looks at the wolf in a lot of different registers. So it looks at the way it's been represented in uh, folklore and ancient traditions. It looks at the story of the, the modern story of the wolf's plight, which is very, very dark, actually. Uh, the, you know, the wolf was basically exterminated throughout uh, North America in a really brutal way by ranchers who were protecting their own cattle and had their own interests that made sense to them, and, and frankly, because people were scared of them, too. It's about wolves, and it's interesting because in the interview, too, he talks about how after he wrote this book, everyone was like, oh, you're the wolf guy now. Everyone came, everything that people talked to him was about wolves, and he was like, well, actually, I wrote a book about wolves because what was interesting to me about wolves was that they were the other, yeah. and, and the way in which they were treated, the way people uh, feared them and related to them was actually what was interesting to me and sort of revealing about humans and animals and life. But people specifically were, just couldn't get past the wolf thing, so he became the wolf man for a while. Oh, I do think it's so interesting the way people are going to say pigeonholed. Now yeah. I want to say wolfhold. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so curious about what it's like to live in Vegas because yeah. I, I kind of forget that people do. Yeah. Are there any really good like Las Vegas books that you love that really nail the place? Um, 
so I would say, let's see if I have this here. I think I do. Dave Hickey is sort of like the classic Vegas writer. Here, Air Guitar. This is this is a fantastic book. So Dave Hickey was an uh, art historian uh, who grew up in, in Vegas in part and then later taught at UNLV. He's sort of, I would say, the, the champion, the modern champion of Vegas uh, as a place. There's a great essay in there about his love for Vegas and his experience of growing up there. One of the things he says about Vegas is that it's a place where sort of the normal dynamics of class in America are flattened and that everyone's kind of treated more or less on the same level and that that's uncomfortable for people um, in some ways, but it's all, it's what he loves about the place. And, uh, you know, the, the sort of like stuffy intellectualism of the coasts doesn't impinge on there. I suppose it's the ultimate, you know, that is where fortunes are reversed and reversed again. Mm-hmm. You know, it could happen to anyone. Um, so this he's, yeah, he's a great Vegas writer. We, we actually also have an essay coming out, uh, not in this next issue, but in the issue after that by Amanda Fortini, who's a uh, writer, journalist, who's been uh, living in Vegas for the past, I think, four or five years, uh, teaching at UNLV. And she has sort of a great Dave, she covered the the shooting that happened there. Oh. She was she was covering that for the New Yorker, and she has a great story that that's sort of summarizing what it feels like to be in Vegas. It's a very, um, you know, it's a very American place in many oh. ways. It's sort of like the you know the most concentrated version of the American culture, but it's also a really misunderstood place oh. in a lot of ways because people go there and they see something that is careful a carefully curated facade of the strip which isn't you know the actual city but it's also one of the things that I like about Amanda's essay is she points out that there people always want to act as though there's Vegas is either all about the strip or it's all not about the strip mm-hmm. and her essay sort of makes the argument and it's like you can't take the strip out of Vegas it's it defines the whole place and also there's all this other stuff going on beyond the strip that doesn't conform to you know or that exists outside of what the average tourist Mm. sees there are so many people who visit Vegas 40 million people a year which is the second most visitors uh in the the, uh in the world only to Mecca it's the only place that has more annual visitors and so there's so many people who have ideas about Mm. the place because they've come and they've seen it and so the the story of Vegas and the the image and idea of Vegas is so big and solidified. It's kind of hard to get outside of it I in guess, a way. I'm sure. and I yeah. guess as well, you can't ignore that if people are visiting somewhere, they're going to kind of have some impact on it, you know, in terms of shaping it. Yeah. And that you know, if they're sort of exporting a story, then to some extent, that is the story, right? You know, the chunk yeah. of the story. Yeah. So going back to the bookshelf. Yeah. Um, Ah, and you have Swallows and Amazons on the theme of Uh um, nature. But when did you last read this? Uh, I actually read it probably about four years ago, a little before I was starting The Boat Builder 2. Had you come across it when you were a kid? Yeah, I read it when I was a kid and uh, sort of wanted to to capture some of the feeling of that book, of of kind of like uh, exploration on water and the playfulness of it 
What do you remember about the very first time you read it? Do you know how old you were or where you were reading it? Wow, that's a good it? question. I don't remember exactly exactly when I first read it. My my older brother David and I were were into it, and I believe actually my mom read it aloud to us the first time. And uh, in many ways, it was such a foreign world to mm. us. You know, the idea of the sort of uh, British countryside and in that period too. I think that was partially what was so interesting about it, but we also just loved the sort of exploratory elements of it. And actually my brother, it's funny that you picked that one out. My brother texted me last night with a link to an IMDb page about the movie, oh. which neither of us knew that a movie had been made. Oh yeah, I wanted to ask you about the fact checker's Bible. Oh is yeah, that what sure. This sounds great. Is this um, something that's useful for work? And yeah, for yeah. Writing? So that's sort of the the main source we use and, and share with folks who are fact checking the magazine. Uh, usually, read have them read the first couple of chapters. It's what it sounds like. It's a an overview of the different kinds of problems you might run into, why fact-checking is important, the history of fact-checking, different sort of cases and examples of things that have happened to other people. How, in your own writing, how do you kind of marry the differences between um, journalism and fiction writing? Do they feel very separate to you, or do you feel like one enhances the other? Or uh, I think they do enhance each other, yeah. I, or I think in some ways working on non-fiction work gets you out in the world, gets you talking to people uh, if you're the writer. And if you're the editor, you're learning about stuff too that, that kind of expands the, the aperture of, of your view and you know that can influence your writing in interesting ways more so than if you were just kind of uh, myopically focused on your own stuff. I think you sort of you run out of space, don't you? When it's just you know you and its tunnel vision. Yeah. I've got a friend who was saying that one of her favourite sources of fiction ideas is the New Scientist, and I think again it comes back to what you were saying about research that yeah. you've got a very sort of, I guess, non-editorialized, quite factual overview of something that's really happening, and then as a novelist you can start to embroider what you see, but you've got a, a foundation there. Exactly, yeah. Were there any of these books that you kind of edited directly? When I was at McSweeney's, I did edit some books, yeah. I, I edited, um, I don't know if it's here, actually. Oh, yeah, it is, over there. Alejandro Zambra's My Documents. Oh, is that on the right? Yeah, it's the orange um, one. There yeah. you go. Oh, yeah. oh, it's next to the um, yeah. orange book. So this is one of, that's one of my favorite books. He's one of my favorite contemporary writers and uh, was really lucky to get to work on that with him and he actually has a piece coming out in the next Believer too um, a story about translation but this is Ooh, yeah. so he writes in Spanish yeah he's Chilean uh, he lives in Mexico City now but my documents one of the things about Zombra that's so amazing is just how tenderly and comically he writes at the same time he feels sort of like a um, just like a, a friend you're having a conversation with and that is actually you know incredibly hard to do on the page although when you're reading it you read it with such ease and it's so uh pleasurable but that's something that i think he does uniquely well i just opened um, it on a page of dialogue where it says in chile we don't dine in chile we eat he answers and i don't want to dine or eat i want to jerk off <laughs> that makes me want to read this it's great yeah i feel like this book keeps coming up um, mm. Fat City, Leonard Gardner. Um, yeah. Have you read this recently? I have, yeah. 
yeah, it, you know, it's, it's such a, you know, set in the, in the Delta, which is a place that doesn't, doesn't get written about that much. Um, and he, he really captures the, the feel of that place. It's something, it's a place that I sort of had a connection to, uh, because my dad went to the University of Pacific. So I had always sort of heard about the Delta and heard about Stockton as a place. Um, but most, most folks who even live in California, you know, never go to Stockton, never go to the, the Delta. And it's such a fascinating place, intersection of so many different communities. That's really the best book I've ever read in terms of capturing the feel of, of being in that place. Also a great just boxing book, which is always uh, fun to read. Always after a good boxing book in this yeah. era of unboxing. <laughs> boxing is the one. What do you think it is about? But I suppose perhaps it comes back to what you're saying about research, but when someone writes a place really, really well, or are there any kind of general rules in terms of sort of scene setting or things that you've learned in your own writing that really establish kind of where a reader is immediately mm. or make that convincing? That's a good question. I think, you know, I always come back to just the work of detail, concrete detail, um, in terms of being able to draw that kind of picture for a reader. Something I was meeting with a bunch of students at St. Mary's the past couple of days, and that was something we talked about a lot. It was just, you know, making sure that every detail uh, on the page is is a home run for you. Mm. You know, because so much of, you know, when you're writing, there's, the process is about just creating stuff and so much of what you initially write is not going to be usable. Um, and, and so the, the thing that I think really then distinguishes good writing in the end is the ability to tell which of the stuff is not good and be rigorously honest with yourself about it. Cause you know, you get attached to the stuff you don't want to, you don't want to lose things. You don't yeah. want to go backward. So you compromise and then you include details that are not as good. And that's how you end up with a bogged down, piece of writing that's you know got some metaphors and similes that are halfway there or uh whatever the case may be so i think with with place and with detail it's the same thing just being like is is this actually because you know you know you you know when it's good mm. if you're really honest with yourself but the problem is just you you want things to be a certain way so you don't pay attention to what is actually on the page and listen to what is actually on the page i think there's a certain kind of book because well a sort of a pressure that people put on themselves but oh, I must have like a a literary voice I need mm. to be you know describing this forest for about five pages when you know three sentences will do to kind of have you know just almost make it and this idea that I think that if something is hard to read it's worthy and I yeah. think that's quite a difficult thing to let go of exactly yeah I always think about you know that like the reader doesn't owe me anything and that it's not that you know that's not to say that I can't present complicated ideas or that they won't be interested in that, but just that, like, there's a million things to do in this world exactly. and a million books to read. And uh, now more than ever, I think that, you know, a hundred years ago, you know, you did not have much competition for eyes. Mm -hmm. You know, people were glad to have something mm -hmm. to do, but right. now, no, very different world. That I have, <laughs> that I've read ten times, yeah. Again. What book do you reread the most? Uh, that's a good question. Um, you know, probably one of the things that I always return to, it's funny because it's not actually a novel, but, uh, are E.B. White's letters, um, which is, it's like this, um, 700 page book of his life's letters. And, 
Um, I've read it a couple of times. Uh, and just in terms of reminding myself of what a truly creative piece of writing can do. Because mm. I suppose letters are so great, aren't they? Mm-hmm. I know this is really a very obvious thing to say, but you don't want extra detail in the letter because yeah. it's, it's all need to know. Well, I think what's so astonishing to me about those letters is just to how how little he seems to be trying hard there, but how magnificent they are. Just kind of a reminder that like writing from a place of ease is often the the way in which you get to the most interesting stuff. Mm. Instead of trying to kind of like gear up and, you know, do something incredible, just kind of like focus on what's happening. And uh, that gives you access to the stuff that is big and universal by, by going into those particular things. And so I read him to kind of remind myself of what that looks like and to kind of just like try it on. It's, it's almost like priming my own mind before I am writing myself. Reminded not to be laboured with it. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't yeah. have to be a big production. Yeah. You say, um, you said about uh, talking to students, have you been teaching? Uh, I just did. I just visited the, a college for uh, two days, but I haven't been teaching now. Just working uh, on the magazine, which is over here cool. too. If you want yeah, to look at those, look. that's my that's my so, collection. That's our borders that's issue right there. Issue. So that's, so, is that on sale now? October, November, yeah, October, November yeah, 19. So this is an issue we did. It emerged from our annual festival, which we've been doing since the magazine moved to Las Vegas. We've done three of them now, uh, and the festival is themed every year. And this is the first year actually where we've done this, but we basically took the theme of the festival and turned it into a special issue in the magazine. So what you're flipping through there, that's Ben Mock's collection of oral histories about the uh, detention centers uh, in Xinjiang province in China. Um, so Ben got a Pulitzer grant and the Jamal Khashoggi grant to uh, go to Kazakhstan and interview people who are coming out of these uh, internment camps, re-education camps, they're calling them, uh, mostly Turkic and uh, peoples and Muslim-majority peoples who essentially the Chinese government is trying to uh, convert to a different ideology. Um, and so Ben went and collect with, with the help of this organization called Agiturk, went to, and um, collected all of these oral histories, translated them, uh, we assigned an illustrator who did these uh, watercolors, and and that's that was sort of the centerpiece of that issue, not related to the festival itself, but the theme of the festival was borders, and so the theme of the issue is uh, borders itself. And there's some there's some stuff in there that did come directly from the festival, like this page that you're looking at right here. Those are responses from folks who visited the festival um, about the first border they remember. Um, and then uh, we also had a sort of a round table of the festival performers who talked about a similar thing. So it was sort of a mixture of work that we commissioned for the issue itself separately after the festival and then material that we drew directly from the events at the festival. I think every year we're going to do this where we're going to take the festival theme and then turn it into a special issue. So this year it was a more collaborative process of all of us uh, picking it together. The theme is for the festival, it's here now, here slash now. And do you know who's going to be speaking at it, is it? 
Uh, I don't. The full lineup, the lineup hasn't been announced yet. But it, uh, if you go to, uh, if you Google the Believer Festival, it'll be up there soon. Who would be your dream if you could have any speaker at all? Just well, we're we like just went name. out to uh, Boots Riley, who I would love to see in Vegas hanging out. It would be it would be great to do an event with him. I um, know him from McSweeney's. McSweeney's actually pub. Have you seen Sorry to Bother You? That movie. Anyway, McSweeney's published his screenplay uh, originally, and then he went to Sundance and turned into a movie. I've known Boots for a little while from that process. Um, Yeah, I would love to see him in Vegas. I think he'd be a great speaker. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. We'll be back to Daniel soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week, a book so richly life-enhancing that it's worth its intellectual weight in annual maximum ISA contributions. This week, it's Trick Mirror, Reflections on Self-Delusion by Gia Tolentino. I've been saving this book for a rainy day. Having read everything by my other favourite essayist, Sadie Smith, I wanted to keep this in the bank, but I couldn't resist it any longer. If you're familiar with Tolentino's work in The New Yorker, you'll know what to expect. It's magnificent. Thought-provoking, measured and addictive writing. A full and nuanced exploration of the way we have come into a world that sometimes seems to lack nuance entirely. My favourite essays included the one about Tolentino's teenage reality TV experiment and the truly excellent dive into scam culture. If you love Fire Festival and or Anna Delvey content, that alone justifies the purchase of the hardback. Trick Mirror is published by Fourth Estate and out now. Now, back to Daniel. I'm going to go and look yeah. at his... I see. Oh, there's a book here called Dreamland. Yeah. That caught my eye because uh, we live um, in a seaside town on the south coast, uh, in a place called Margate. Dreamland is the name of our theme park that has suffered mixed fortunes oh, and ups really? and downs and been sort of renovated several That's times. Very similar to what happens um, in, in this book, yeah. Oh, this is the true tale of America's opiate epidemic. Yes. Um, by Sam Quijones? Quijones, yeah. So that's one of the books that 
I would file under under sort of like broader research that went into the writing of the boat builder. Uh. Um, you know, Sam's book. People would often ask me when the boat builder came out. You know, questions about the opioid epidemic, and you know, I almost always directed them to that book because I think it's sort of the best, broadest history. Uh, and diagnosis of how things came to be what they are, and, and just kind of a really wide-ranging, well-written book um, that almost reads like a, a television show, in a way. He's, he's, as a nonfiction writer, he's very good at opening and closing chapters, drawing you through the n- narrative. Uh, it's very propulsive. Did you come to this book as a focused part of your research, or was it kind of in your head before you started writing? Yeah, I came to it as as part of my research. So the the way I started writing the boat builder was uh I or I got the idea for it uh from taking a boat building class which I started taking uh in Sausalito not because I was going to thought I was going to write a book about boat building but just because I was interested in it. Um and I started and the story kind of emerged from that class and was evolving and the at a certain point the opioid element uh, moved into the four, uh, and I didn't know that much about it. And so that was really the, probably the most concentrated subject of, that I had to research. Um, I, I spent the most time researching that cause I had the least, um, familiarity with it. Um, and so that book was, was a part of that period of research. I love, I didn't know that, that you were actually in a boat building class. Who, yeah. what, what made you want to do it? Who were you in the class with? Uh, so I had been working on charter boats actually, and was just sort of like interested in the design of boats and, uh, had heard that there was this great teacher, uh, in Sausalito. And so, uh, I went and, um, it was really interesting because the, his name's Bob Dar. He was actually from the same place where I had grown up. Uh, and he had run a boat building shop for a while there, which is in uh, Marin County north of where we are in his class you know we we uh got to know each other and he would tell these stories about when he had his shop uh in marin and you know he was a great storyteller and also it was just sort of um the first time i had heard my home place described in a way in which i sort of recognized it uh in this very vivid way sort of as an adult coming back to it in in a way that i, I hadn't until then and I begin, you know how that happens where like you, the place where you're from, you don't actually see it as a place sometimes. Yeah. And then you kind of go away from it a little bit and come back to it. And then you're like, oh, this is a very particular area. Sure. I'm from um, sort of further along from where I live now in the South Coast, um, Dorset, which I guess is like where Thomas Hardy was writing and stuff. And yeah. definitely because, it, you know, it's very, very beautiful. It's got the most extraordinary countryside. And I was just like, why would anyone want to live here? I'm going to go out to go to London. And now I'm like, oh, I can see the appeal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also see certain weird things about the way people sort of think and speak and act and you get a bit of perspective on that and you're like oh not not everyone does that yeah yeah um and so that's that's where I started that's really where I started thinking about the book from was just thinking about the way Bob talked about that place and thinking about that place as a setting for a book because I know the most I know about um, Marin Country, and you might be absolutely sick of this reference, but comes from the serial uh, Cyrus McFadden. You know, I think it was written. It was definitely, definitely written in the seventies, um, and it was when um, 
Armistead Mopem's writing Tales of the City uh-huh. as a serialisation. And it was because I think that was so popular and they just sort of couldn't keep up with it. And I think a different paper like ran that and it's sort of the like a you know, the nuclear typical sort of family destructing in the most seventies way and oh, just getting very, very into like LSD and macrame and <laughs> all the rest of it. It's great fun, okay. but I don't know how um how hippified it really was or whether you kind of grew up with the hippie ghosts <laughs> trailing you. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, that's a big part of what I think uh characterizes that area. Um but I've never heard of that serialization. I'll have to check that it's out. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Do you ever like, listen to audiobooks or are you very much a picking oh, up yeah, and reading audiobooks paper? all the time. I love audiobooks. I'm actually listening to this on audiobook right oh, now. Oh, great. So here we have But I got it. Um, Ken Kesey's big novel, Sometimes a Great yeah, Notion. I like how they say that big novel right on the uh-huh. cover. <laughs> it I is love a big novel. This lettering and this is very. Yeah. When was it published? I'm going to guess. This so is like I'm, super 70s. I'm listening to it on tape, but you know. Uh, I feel like sometimes I miss things when I'm listening to it on tape, so I got a little paperback, too, in case I want to go back and look at certain things. I like it. I like it. It's a big uh, book about the Pacific Northwest and logging and kind of a, uh, yeah, an ambitious family saga in a way that is kind of out of fashion, I think, right now in some ways, but is enjoyable to read. And something that was super interesting that I learned about this book uh, when I started reading it was that, you know, he was with the Merry Pranksters and, you know, Neil Cassidy and all, all those Tom Wolfe who were on that trip. And I didn't realize, I never knew this, but the reason, the, the sort of point of the trip was to take Ken Kesey to New York to do publicity for Sometimes a Great Notion. Oh. That was kind of like the theoretical uh-huh. reason they were driving across the country. Ooh. Cleveland plain dealer. I'm not sure how to feel about a book when, like, we need a cover quote. We'll have to put the Cleveland plain dealer one of there. They're a good newspaper, the plain dealer. It gasps, pants, whoops, and shrieks. <laughs> but we also, I have just because I have to, um, I have to say the title whenever I see it. I see I Love Dick. Yeah. This looks like a really early version. Is this when it first came out? Or? Uh, it's. This, no, it this. I bought. Came out I got this Is recently. That... Oh, and it's signed. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah, for for a friend. Oh, so have you read it, or are you waiting to, to gift no, it? No, no, I'm going to gift it, yeah. Uh, I will, I will <laughs> but, yeah, she came to Las Vegas uh, last year. This is an interesting book down here to the left, the one that says To Dance on Sands. So this is, have you ever heard of Marta Beckett? I don't think I have. She is a sort of classically trained dancer, who uh, had a whole career in New York and in the 30s was driving through Death Valley with her husband and found this abandoned theater uh, in Death Valley Junction and just had this vision of herself moving there to live there for the rest of her life. Really remote, isolated, desert area. And so she built this theater and painted this whole uh, elaborate mural on the walls of the theater um, in the middle of nowhere and would do these performances kind of by herself. And eventually she became sort of this uh, well-known performer there and attracted a lot of Los Angeles uh, artists and writers. Ray Bradbury was really into her. Um, And she would do these performances and uh, she recently passed away. 
super interesting story, life story. It looks fascinating. I've just yeah. opened the part where she is telling Mr. Sandal, maybe her the theatre landlord, I don't know, I want to paint murals on your walls. Yeah. Oh, there it goes. Yeah. How did this come into your possession? Where did you hear about her? Um, I heard about her, so when I was living in Las Vegas, the writer Claire V. Watkins, uh, who is from that border area between California and Nevada, she's, she's actually from the town of Shoshone, which is where I got that, um, that other little pamphlet. She told me about Marta. Uh, she, she grew up around that area, so she knew a lot about the, the history and stories of, of people who live there. It's a really beautiful book, and you know, it's really evocative of the time. I mean, I think you know, ballet's always been glamorous, but there was definitely a period, wasn't there, where it was just like, it was you know, the thing you wanted to do, you wanted to you know, well, may, maybe mostly girls, but <laughs> you wanted to be a dancer yeah, when you grew up. Yeah, those are some of the pictures of what she drew. Uh, you can see on the on the walls of the... Oh, so these are all her pictures? Let's see if we can find some. Yeah, here this we go. This is some. So this is, yeah, it's very, this is, you can see the side of the, this is the seating area. Here are, you know, jesters mm. and knights and courtiers and... The detail there is amazing. Yeah, and, and apparently she like initially painted these because she she said that she didn't want to perform to an empty house. So she painted her own audience. If you paint it, they'll come. <laughs> oh, that's a great book. I'm so excited yeah. to hear about that. And to... Oh, I was going to point to this book, The Evil Hours by David Morris, which is a really interesting book. Uh, the gold one. Yeah, that's a, that's a really fascinating... David is a... Um, writer and teacher at UNLV who I met when I moved to Las Vegas. Uh, and this is sort of his kind of, he was a Marine uh, who then uh, developed PTSD. And this is sort of his panoramic look at the disorder, uh, similar to actually Dreamland in some ways, in terms of the, the, the depth with which it looks at the subject. But he's sort of trying to understand both what's going on for himself and the history of the thing and it's and it's many manifestations really really compelling so does book. it feel like a memoir in places or is it much mm -hmm. more kind of factual yeah, than that definitely mixture of memoir and non-fiction and i guess you know you've got a lot of skin in the game if you're writing a very sort of important and factual book about something that you really want to yeah resolve for yourself yeah it's very honest are there any books here that you've not read but are sort of, you know, when you... If I were to give you the gift of, like, a week where you didn't yeah. have to work or do anything or meet any obligations, what would you pick out? Um, I well, I've it. heard really wonderful things about The Yellow House, which I just got by Sarah Broom. That's a oh, National Book Award nominee right there. Yeah. I've heard great things about that book. Okay, so this is... Um... A debut memoir mm -hmm. about the pull of home and family set in a neglected New Orleans neighbourhood. Oh, so this is all about her her life and her experiences growing up, or is it a is it like a yes? So yeah, it's not novelised. It's a straight Orleans. memoir. Um, well, this is the new McSweeney's that I haven't cracked, which I'm looking oh. forward to reading. I'm not sure if you guys have seen this. Kind of a fun uh, oh, series of beautiful. that's like what's tiny books amazing stationery yeah <laughs> um so I mean, that's on my list bad. some of these books too uh that you know a few books that were sent to me to review for the believer book awards that's something that i'm still doing how do you um, find that 
process? Do you love it or is it quite difficult to make those I calls? I like it. I think it's really interesting. We kind of do it by committee. So all of the editors read different stuff throughout the year and uh, then we all sort of bring our favorites to the uh. table and that's what constitutes the long list. And then from there, a sort of more uh, rigorous process ensues where we all read the long lists and make the decisions from there. Do you um, have any fights? Are there any times when you really had to argue? Yeah, yeah, people definitely love? have, you know, different things that they're advocating for, I would say. Are there any books that you discovered through that process that you didn't hear about throughout the year but you were very excited to meet? Yeah, well, so the winner of last year's nonfiction award, uh, Interior States by Megan O'Geeblin, was a book that I really loved that I hadn't heard about until one of our editors brought it uh, as a nominee for the long list. Uh, and I think she's just a real standout uh, writer. She writes a lot about, um, she was raised in an evangelical family and then fell out of the faith. And that informs a lot of uh, her work. She writes a lot about the Midwest uh, and technology. I think because she's come from a culture that is radically different from the culture that she inhabits right now. She's very good at being able to sort of understand and consider what it would be like to be someone who's very different than her. So, so she's, um, she's able to kind of like reach across divides. I think that a lot of other writers who come from more liberal coastal places or, you know, who, who are part of a, who have not shifted identities in the mm -hmm. same way or not shifted contexts in the same way. Uh, aren't able to do. And I'm sure there are so many details you miss if you grow up really sort of enmeshed in a culture, if everything looks not so dramatically different from, you know, how it is or how it was. Whereas, yeah. you know, you must see with such a searing clarity when everything is a little bit alien. Exactly, yeah. Um, and I mean, yeah, she's also just a really special intelligence, I think, and uh, has a very sharp way of connecting different subjects and thinking about different ideas. Uh, at the time of recording, um, we're approaching what I believe you people call the holiday season. Yeah. Um, what are the best and worst books you've ever received as gifts? Do people buy you books or do uh, they? So do I'm, I'm actually Jewish, so we don't we don't really do the uh, holiday season in quite the same way. I think my parents would get us books sometimes for Hanukkah, but it was more like a nod to make us feel not left out with all of the <laughs> other, all of our other Christian friends who were receiving things. Consolation yeah. book. <laughs> yeah. Um, that was definitely what they were trying to do. But there, it, it, there is a very funny story about um, one of my uh, ex-girlfriends when I was sort of in my early 20s. I went to um, their house for the holidays and uh, her father gave me a gift that was a box of Play-Doh, like for like a like children's Play-Doh, that he had been planning to. He said he had been planning to give to a child the day before, but wasn't able to. <laughs> <laughs> that was probably the worst, the worst uh, holiday-related gift I've received. I was like, is, this is, seems like a message of some kind. <laughs> Christmas, you can keep it. <laughs> yeah. Cool, an interesting yeah. Adios Cowboy by, um, I'm going to try and pronounce this name, we're going to have to edit this out, um, Olya um, Savicevic. I'm not going to be able to do any better. Yeah, this is a book that came out, I haven't read this one, it came out with McSweeney's a few years ago. I believe she's Croatian, yes, from Split, Croatia. 
because I read a shameful amount of kind of books that aren't written in English. Um, And I'm always so curious about what changes, you know, translations not being literal things, how the sort of, whether there are any kind of shifts in meaning or not. I heard like there are, like Murakami has two translators and the one that we read most is sort of, everything's much more measured and stately, but there are some versions that are quite kind of, everything's like present tense and the Mm. sentence is very short and the sensation of reading it is much more urgent and anxiety inducing. Yeah, that's actually Zambra has the, from my documents, Zambra over there, his story that is in the next issue is about translation and the experience of being translated and also the experience of subsequently learning English and then kind of experiencing translation once you are also fluent in English and and kind of talking about who you become in a different language, kind of. One, one of the my favorite parts of the essay is he talks about how when he's first learning English, he has the idea that like, maybe he could be a, like a more interesting person in English, like say things more concisely, be more, be like a better version of himself. So cannot wait to read this piece. Yeah, it sounds it's really so good. good. It's really good. I do have, I don't quite know how this worked, but a friend of a friend um, moved to Barcelona and in English, she was always a little bit kind of short-tempered and sarcastic and rude and impatient. But then among sort of, you know, Catalan people, she was kind of extremely like polite and considerate. Yeah. And even though she was talking to my friend in English, that version of her sort of, you know, stayed. She yeah. was just um, nicer in yeah. a foreign language, much more amenable to be around. Yeah, yeah, I think that happens. Oh, this, this, this is Simba. Richard Mori trip to the uh the south seas this was a book that my um boat building teacher told me about story of a boat and um richard morey's uh which was a uh, he was a solo sailor really interesting story filed under one of the sort of like research pieces that's like related but not related and is it a happy uh, book of boating triumph or did he keep getting in storms and things he keeps getting in storms and things but he triumphs I would say he triumphs. Yeah. This is an interesting one, too, Stoner. Oh! Because yeah, th- that was a book, another book that I think this is another was reissued yeah. and became a huge... Yeah. I have actually read it. Steve Almond, um, Steve Almond just wrote a book about it, actually. It's really interesting, sort of about the role that Stoner played in his life and the different readings of it that he had over his life, like what it meant to him when he was 22 and what it meant to him when he was 30 and 40 and so on. And I do think it is one of those books that kind of, it's the story of a life. And so it it kind of um, applies. There are many different readings of it that you can have. Um, That's such a great idea for a kind of memoir, I think, to talk about how a book has shaped you and reshaped you. Is there anything that you have read and either like connected with now or recently in a way that you couldn't years ago when you started or anything that you loved like when you were 20 and now you're like oh wait that's I don't know why (laughs) I like Um, that book so much I mean I think Swallows and Amazons uh is one of those books that I think it's unique in that way where you come back to it and it's still interesting I think there are a lot of young adult books that are like that that um or, or the really good ones, yeah. sort of, you can still read as an adult, and they're, they're still uh, it's so true. powerful. I the, the best ones 
nail the fact that your emotions are, you know, very adult and very intense. Mm-hmm. And then the older you get, the more people don't take those seriously in you when you're a child. But those yeah. authors are the ones who really do. Exactly. Yeah, like Harper Lee comes to mm. mind, you know, as someone who sort of, it's a children's book in many ways, but, you know, she didn't really shy away from dealing mm. with very serious intense stuff you know extreme like racial prejudice rape all of this stuff that's in this children's book Mm. you know because she treats children like adults i think they Mm. children respond well to that book um and care about it and that's definitely i remember reading to kill a mockingbird like all in one go it being one of those books where you think this is this is for me and it's not someone saying oh, you'll, you'll like this, you should read that. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't want to read Lorna Doone or whatever. And then you're mm-hmm. like, whoa. What, can you remember the first thing or like an early thing you read on your own and you had that very intense reaction to? That it, that it was written for me. Or, or just, just that you felt that your relationship with it was sort of much more private than a parent or teacher sort of saying, this will be good for you. I think the book that's coming to mind, I don't know if it was the first instance of this, but uh, Hatchet which was a young adult book that was about a boy in the woods um, who, who gets stranded there uh, after a plane crash. But also I think Where the Red Fern Grows was a really powerful book for me that I felt I had an incredibly um, intimate experience of that was all my own. And occasionally I think it's possible, you're either delighted when you find someone who loves it, as you did, but then also feel a little bit um we just were talking to a a guest who was talking about uh, growing up and loving Roald Dahl and then Mm -hmm. being quite surprised oh you've heard of him too what do you mean (laughs) he's quite famous I thought he was mine yeah 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 I mean that's what's so wonderful about writing is that you have that and and I think what makes it still such a powerful form you know despite everything else that we are distracted by is that there's that kind of intimacy that you feel uh with a good piece of writing that you can't really reproduce in the same way with the film or certainly not with a tweet or you know you can you can get a a taste of it maybe but that's I think what makes writing so special and it's something I try and remind myself too in terms of thinking about my own work is like that's the the point Mm. um and to, to not sort of lose sight of that and I think it's something quite comforting as well, because I don't, I mean, this is um, arguable for sure and up for debate, but I can't think of any other creative work or art where the person who is experiencing it has to bring something of themselves so continuously mm-hmm. and they've got to interpret and understand it. And as you say, it's, they're committing to spending time with you and they don't have to do that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's, that, that was one of the interesting things about Steve Amon's project with Stoner, too, was just the way in which it revealed how much of himself he brought to that book mm. in so many different moments. What would it put you on the spot? But if you were going to do something similar, if you were going to choose a book... Yeah. Oh, I'd love to read your book about your relationship with Spoilers and Amazons. Yeah. And how, you know, from <laughs> childhood to adulthood. Yeah, I would love to write about Arthur Ransom. I think probably if I were to write about anyone, it it would be uh, E.B. White. He's probably been the most like influential person to me in terms of my own writing and thinking about my own life. 
I really want to read that letters book now because I think certainly in the UK we forget because he's so 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 associated with spiders that right. um, yeah. his other work and his sort of right. you know yeah. his maturity and his observations are you know so powerful and I think we not I mean but I do love Charlotte's Web. I do yeah. think it's a work of genius. Yes, totally. Yeah, I think that's what was so interesting about his career. He had this whole life, you know, writing for The New Yorker, writing these, many in many cases, political news breaks for The New Yorker. And then he also had this children's book career, which was quite divergent in a mm. lot of ways. And But uh, yeah, I think he's led such an interesting life. Huge thanks to Daniel. You can follow him at dgumbiner on Twitter and do read The Boat Builder, a powerful and moving story about addiction, community and connection. I'm Daisy Buchanan and I've been your book inspector. Thank you so much for joining me, fellow shelf obsessives. You can find me on Twitter at NotRollerGirl and on Instagram at the Daisy B. Say hello, suggest some guests and watch out for shelfies. Visit our show page, eggcast.com slash booked for more information about our guests and a list of the books I've talked about. If you have any other queries about the podcast, you can email us at whybooked at gmail.com. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. Please do subscribe, rate us and leave a review. It's great to hear what you think and it helps other people to find the podcast. For now, I leave you this from The History Boys by Alan Bennett. The best moments in reading are when you come across something, a thought, a feeling, a way of looking at things which you had thought special and particular to you. Now here it is, set down by someone else, a person you have never met, someone even who is long dead, and it is as if a hand has come out and taken yours. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.